you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hi, my name's Gabby Dunn And this is my show, Bad With Money This podcast has always been geared towards people who are underserved by traditional money media. I've thought a lot about who I'm booking or asking my producer to book. I want black women. I want queer people. I want people from working class backgrounds. I want disabled people. I want intersections of all of it, etc., etc. But one group that in eight seasons I've never specifically dedicated an entire episode to is the neurodivergent community. It's a broad stroke, right? Neurodivergence can mean anything from autism to ADHD to Tourette's to bipolar disorder, anything that isn't neurotypical, quote unquote. It's a less common way of thinking, although maybe not as uncommon as we tend to assume. In my book, Bad With Money, I devoted an entire chapter to the ways in which my own bipolar 2 diagnosis created impulse spending, depressive holes where I couldn't look at my bills or open my mail, which is great for your credit score, by the way, and an often scattered approach to traditional job placement, i.e. I quit and was fired a lot. I spoke one other time on this podcast to a bipolar activist named Julie Fast in an episode about a few other topics, which we cheekily titled, What If You're F***ed? But generally, neurodivergence hasn't taken center stage on bad with money. That changes Today, based on my own research, mental health is the biggest factor in personal finance. And that can show up in many ways. Poverty leads to or at least heightens existing depression and anxiety. Systemic racism can do the same. Bank forms and loan forms and credit card mailers and labyrinthian telephone and website messes are all purposefully confusing, especially if you get overwhelmed quickly. But financially and economically, neurodivergence is also not an inherent loss. And it's a mistake to think of it this way. There's long documentation of what can go wrong when everyone at the office or in the boardroom or in the lab thinks the same way. AI that can't detect black faces. TSA body scanners flagging trans bodies incorrectly. A billboard, let's say, going up with flashing lights that could cause seizures. Ideas are just not as profitable. Or you lose money. And frankly, these omissions and mistakes are often dangerous. I feel similarly about this episode as I did about our finale last season featuring Professor Lee Badgett. The economic boon caused by LGBTQ inclusion. Along the same line, why you should hire neuroatypical people so you can make more money. Hooray, capitalism. There's some of that in this episode. There's also frank discussion of what hiring practices need to change so that an autistic woman can look at a job description and more accurately assess whether to apply. How someone with a special interest might perceive pleasure spending. And a very personal exploration through how difficult it becomes to do what someone else might condescendingly call just a simple task. Please don't ever use that phrase to deride someone else. Please. Our first guest today is Nicola Whiting, a technology executive and autistic neurodiversity advocate. I found Nicola through a Forbes article titled The Success Spectrum, 
which is about neurodiversity in the workplace. When we think about disability accommodations, we might only picture wheelchair ramps or closed captions, which are important. But we might not think about the way an office smells, or the choice of overhead lighting, or the time frame in which tasks and information are doled out so as to give people with difficulty transitioning the ability to smoothly adjust. What is there presenting unnecessary challenges for employees who are neuroatypical that could dramatically up their productivity, up their happiness with their jobs, and also would just be morally right to implement? Then we'll speak to my partner, Mal Blum, a musician who was diagnosed with ADHD at age nine. For the past two years of our romantic relationship, we were friends before, I've been able to see up close the ways it hinders their ability to handle the bureaucracy of bills, Oh, we're going to get to that uncancelable Planet Fitness membership. The indelicate time blindness hole, for lack of a better, less ableist word, and the personal hurdles we have of sharing money when we have very different mental health diagnoses. But first, Nicola. So I'm Nicola Whiting. I'm the co-owner of Titania Group, which is a cybersecurity company. But the rest of the time, I spend talking about diversity and inclusion because it's a real key thing for our industry to actually be successful. And I'm autistic and a woman in tech, so I'm quite invested in both of those things. I know I've listened to you talk a lot about your work, but I'm curious, what was your journey for autism diagnosis? When were you diagnosed or when did you have an inkling that you should go get diagnosed? Uh, Funny old thing, because I've always believed in diversity. And I've always believed it's a strength of a business. And I was asked to speak at a neurodiversity event. And as a neurotypical employer who employed neurodivergent people. And while I was at the event, I interacted with more autistic people than I've ever interacted with before. And I was listening to all of the fellow speakers and they were describing their challenges with light. And, you know, if it's too light, they can't concentrate and noise and all the different sensory inputs and running out of social energy and how you can fall down a rabbit hole of research and special interests and how those equate to career success if the whole is right. And I'm just thinking, this is me. All of these things are me. And so I kind of went away and started looking at this more seriously. And and I am a a big researcher and, and realized that I'd basically been living as an undiagnosed autistic my entire life. And so the first part of the journey was self-diagnosis. And then I went through formal diagnosis, not necessarily for the same reasons that many other people do, because I obviously owning my own company, I didn't necessarily need the protections or things like that, but really as a journey of self-discovery. And also, whilst I think you know self-diagnosis is perfectly valid, I knew that I wanted to speak publicly as an autistic person. And I I just felt that I wanted that diagnosis for my own personal authenticity. Yeah. So at 40, (laughs) I um, got my diagnosis and um, it was like my poles changed. What do you mean? So the things I, I thought I was naturally good at were part of my um, neurodivergent brain type. And the things that I'd beaten myself up about my whole life, I was actually really rather good at considering that there, a lot of them were in my challenge areas. So, for example, I've studied psychology all my life and how 
humans interact with each other, to understand really social behaviours. I was doing it as a, a study so that I could blend and support people and interact for success. But it was very much learned behaviour, like learning to drive. Mm-hmm. And that actually gave me quite a lot of strengths in marketing and understanding how to phrase things for people so that they really understood how I was trying to help them because I had to learn it, whereas for other people it came more naturally. So that's what I do now a lot as well when I do mentoring is I help people capture the human operating system. Let's pause for a second for a word from our sponsors. So when did you realize like, okay, I can incorporate this into my work or this might be an asset to my work? In terms of positively saying I'm autistic, as soon as I had a diagnosis, even a self, I was like, I'm I'm going to be very public about this because if people aren't open and it's a choice, then you know other people don't know that you could be a successful business owner or that you could be a woman in tech and an autistic woman in tech. So it's a bit like the journey the LGBTQI plus community had. It was only when people started being public about their different sexualities that people went, oh, it's okay to you know, have all of these <laughs> differences and everybody can still be successful and everybody can still contribute. And there's, there actually isn't any problem with mm-hmm. humanity's infinite variety. In fact, it's a bonus. So I tend to drop it in, mm-hmm. in pretty much every talk I do, even if it's not about neurodiversity. So if I'm talking about AI, say, or how to cope with ransomware or the future of technology, I'll often go, oh, by the way, I'm autistic and I don't recognize micro expressions. So if you're agreeing with me, could you just nod big? <laughs> now, that's a bit sneaky because one, it tells people I'm autistic. But two, and, and this is a naughty marketing thing, if people start nodding big, they actually start agreeing more. Uh-huh. And even if they, they shake their heads, what it does is it emphasizes whatever feeling you're having because your brain is 150,000 year olds and it gets confused easily. So if people are nodding big, they tend to go, oh, that that was a really good talk. I completely agree. (laughs) So how would you define neurodiversity as opposed to neurodivergence? Neurodiversity includes neurotypical people. Mm -hmm. Neurodivergence doesn't. If you think about ethnic diversity, that includes white people. Right. And we often use that term incorrectly because we go well we want to increase neurodiversity so we'll hire some neurodiverse people right uh okay (laughs) it's like when someone's like we're hiring a diverse person but what they mean to say is a black person yeah and sometimes it's with really good intent it's because people don't really know what the language is that they should use and they are on the course of like well diversity is good right so if I use that nobody's going to be offended and, and generally, <laughs> if people have got good intent, I'm, I never would be offended. And particularly if people are choosing neurodiverse as their own language for themselves, I'm never going to mm-hmm. be the language police on that. But if it's an organization and they want to be credible, then it's better to use the actual factual language, which would be neurodivergent or neuroatypical or if you don't like either of those Mm -hmm. two words some people are using neurovariant which is just a I'm a different variant of thought type Mm. and brain type to you what would fall under neurodivergence Uh, basically anything that's not neurotypical so so uh, autistic and dyslexic (laughs) Tourette's a lot of the axias so dyspraxia dyslexia dyscalculia Pretty much any variety that isn't typical. And typical is hard as well, because what's typical? 
<laughs> yeah, right? One thing that you said that I, I really thought was interesting was groupthink is not a friend to business. Yeah. So what, what did you mean by that? So groupthink is the tendency for people that come from similar thought backgrounds and experiences to think the same. And, you know, you only have to look at cliques that form to, to see how people tend to merge their thought processes. And what happens is when you apply that in business, if you have a board that kind of thinks all the same, then you're going to miss out on the two key things. You're going to miss out on innovation because you haven't got enough ideas around the table that are different. And you're going to miss out on resilience. And really, those are really two key things for boards because resilience is about protecting the stuff that you've built and also responding quickly to threat. So if you've got everybody that thinks the same around the table, how many ideas are you genuinely going to have? And then when you look at it in real life terms for innovation, people make really stinking mistakes. And I mean, huge, expensive, publicly embarrassing mistakes. So for example, Amazon, they tried to do a hiring algorithm. Oh, no. And what they did is they fed it 10 years of data on the sort of people they hired. And strangely, because, you know, they've got a lot of technology in their company, a lot of those people they hired were men. Mm. And AIs learn in the same way human babies learn. So it looked at all the data and kind of went, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing their AI here. So what happened is what they did is they built a system that had discrimination by design built in. Yep. And when it saw women's chess club champion or, or girls school, it was taking those people out of the candidate pool, which is obviously far from what Amazon would have liked. And they tried to fix that, but they realized that the data was the data and, and the AI had already learned and there was quite a lot of investment in that. So they scrapped the project. And that's just one of many things. Wow. That in the UK, the Metropolitan Police did something called the Gangs Matrix. And the idea behind that was to quickly identify where people might be that had committed gang crime. Now, the challenge with that is, again, the data set. Um, the data set had mainly young black men in, about 80%, something like that. And only 20-something percent of actual gang offenders are young black men. And what happened is the data set also included people that were relatives and associated people. And then the data set got leaked to other places that started making decisions on things like housing. So that was bad enough. But then it got to the stage where Amnesty International and Liberté got involved and started saying, you are criminalizing a generation of young black men. Mm -hmm. And that obviously was all completely unintended <laughs> and very, very embarrassing. And they're still kind of trying to sort that out. And those are just two examples. There are hundreds of examples. To this day, women are more likely to get killed in a car accident because seatbelts were designed for men and they've never really fully been redesigned. And you can extrapolate that into neurodivergence and people who are neuroatypical because workplaces, for example, like lighting, perfume, smells, organization, workflow, all of these <laughs> things are not stuff that I think a neurotypical person would think about in terms of like the work environment. Can we talk about that a little? Yeah. So I'm, I'm laughing because do you remember I told you that I didn't know that I was neurodivergent? I didn't know I was autistic. I'm, I'm literally yeah. got tears coming from my eyes because um, the human beings tend to assume that everybody experiences the world like they do. That's a natural human assumption. So if I think the, the sun is bright, 
I assume everybody else is going to think it's bright. Now, I have hypersensitivity to smells, to scent. So if somebody, for example, was wearing a moderate amount of floral perfume, to me, it would be like being napalmed in the face. (laughs) Goodness, this person is rude to go bathing in their perfume before they leave the house. So I would be going up to people it like shows and go, mm, spray bottle, did you? Mm, ah, mm." And like asking people not to bathe in their perfume before they came and worked with me because, you know, you're making me cry. And and I had no idea that it was just me. So I spent a lot of time in my first year of autism kind of apologizing to a lot of people going, by the way, you remember when I was incredibly rude to you that day? Really sorry. Turns out it's just me. Um, so you know that, and that's just one thing. You know, something that would be a, a mildly chilly air conditioning to one person could be like being battered by the North Pole to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Something that is a, a, a tiny little incidental noise to one person could be like having a brass band play in their ear for another. So, I think this is about tolerance and about mm-hmm. inclusion and about having people be part of the conversation about their environment. And and that isn't just for neurodivergent people, it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. There's a brilliant book called First Break All the Rules, which was written by um, groups of people, but based on Gallup information, where they interviewed hundreds of thousands of people and lots and lots and lots of the most successful businesses in America and in the world, and found out what all the best managers did. And essentially, it really boils down to the concept of letting people work in their best flow and looking after people. And a lot of businesses don't do that, but it's the heart of diversity support. Yeah. One thing that you talked about that I I think you're touching on here is the challenges of recruiting neurodivergent talent. So making the job descriptions more inclusive and and letting people know like what they're actually going to be working on or who would apply to what. Can you talk about that a little bit? It was so interesting, the idea of like autistic people being like, I'm not going to apply unless it's like exactly what I do. Do you know what? And this is what, what I love about diversity. What's good for one set of people is pretty much good for all of the people. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I want to talk about is Quite often, organizations look at diversity as a cost exercise. What's it going to cost me to get some of these different thinkers in? And it isn't. It's an investment exercise because it's what do I need to spend to get this amount of innovation and this amount of resilience in? That's a different kind of mental framing. Secondly, if you look at every single management book, pretty much on the planet that's decent, it will say a key area of people being successful is knowing what they are supposed to do and having the tools to do it. It's kind of success 101. So if that's the case, why don't you start with that right when you're recruiting people? Now, it's not just autistic people that won't apply for a job unless they think they tick all the boxes. It's also women, which is another underserved area of our industry that we're banging on about getting more people that are women. And we know that that makes boards and businesses more successful because we have the stats to prove it from the investment companies. A balanced board with diversity built in is more successful on your bottom line profits. It's proven. So 
given that it will help women and given that it will help autistic people and other people, all you need to do, and this is not rocket science, is look at your job description and pull out the things that are absolutely essential, like knife juggler wanted, must be able to juggle knives. Accountant wanted, must be able to use this accountancy software, probably. Right. You know, so you pull that out and then you take all the other stuff and you put it to one side or you put it at the bottom of the advert and you go, if you have these things, it's beneficial, but not essential or could be trained for. And and then what you do is you're opening up your candidate pool to a wider variety of people. If you don't do that, what you're likely to do is get a, a disproportionate proportion of men applying because it's been proven that they will tend tend to apply for jobs that they don't meet all the criteria in because that's just human nature and, and behavior types. So that's one of the things. The other thing that I've been told by various neurodivergent people is that all of the kind of legalese that you see at the bottom of those job adverts are recruit on the basis of. And it, it's just legalese. Doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore because every job advert has it. So if you're genuinely wanting to do these things, you put a welcome mat out, just put it at the top. Goodness, people spend more time telling people about the free Coke and ice cream and gym membership than they do saying, we welcome neurodivergent applicants. We welcome different genders or sexualities. Please come and apply. These are the sort of accommodations. So if you need to arrive later, if you need a different type of interview, please let us know. We're perfectly happy accommodating people. It's standard in our business. If you put that at the top of a job advert rather than the free Coke and gym membership, I guarantee you that you would increase the likelihood that neurodivergent people would apply. The other thing that's really, really important is don't be a toxic environment. There is nothing more horrific to me than the idea that I would help somebody get the recruitment right into a toxic environment that they haven't actually thought about how do we include people how do we know that the people are going to land in an environment where their colleagues and managers are able to understand that everybody has different needs and different preferences for success So if you are a neurodivergent person, let's say you have ADHD or you're autistic and your company doesn't already do this stuff, how do you recommend them to be like, hey, actually the lighting here is not great for me or it would really be great if I could work from 10 to 6 instead of 9 to 5. How do you broach that stuff by saying like this has to do with my brain? It depends on the individual person because language preferences are key to this. For example, some autistics are completely nonverbal, so they can't just go up and have a chat with somebody. And many people are either people that operate best on the spur of the moment or people that are reflective thinkers. So I would suggest that, first of all, you you use your preference for language choice because it's going to be stressful enough asking for something that you need to be successful. And two, my suggestion is, as a business owner, that although you are protected legally, at least in America and the UK, that you actually frame it as a success thing. Because if you frame it as a, you know, I want to be productive, I think I will be more productive if I'm able to do this because of my neurotype. These are the reasons that it will make me more productive. 
And these are the reasons that the current situation actually presents some challenges for me. You're making it easy for those people to make the right decision for you. If you frame it as a just a, an accommodation, which you're perfectly entitled to do, by the way, then the business will tend to look at it from the point of view of, can we afford to do this? If you frame it as a success for the business, their answer should be, can we afford not to do this? I mean, it just seems so stressful, but you know, I think like it's really important for people to to realize that the way that it was set up in terms of like coming in at this time and the the lighting's going to be like this and the office is going to be set up like this and this is how everyone should turn in their sheets or whatever. It just doesn't work for having a workplace that has people in it that can point out the flaws that you are mentioning that can say not just, you know, gender or sexuality wise, but that can say like, hey, this thing that you invented, it could give epileptic people seizures (laughs) or like this thing that you've invented, autistic people will not be able to use. I have friends with schizophrenia who have said that there's certain things that are made like, like, oh, it's representation for schizophrenic people, but then they can't actually watch the project. Is there something that you've noticed like, okay, this would actually be better for my workflow? Not when you're like a person who is in charge, but maybe in the past when you were like an employee. For me, it's about preference. And what is my preference isn't necessarily going to be another autistic person's preference. For example, I'm pretty hyperverbal. But if somebody was saying what I am, I would be an extroverted introvert. So I'm, I'm verbal. I can have lots of conversations. I enjoy People's, I'm enjoying my conversation with you. I'm enjoying your company, but it uses my energy up. And whereas a, a genuine extrovert or somebody that isn't my neurotype would be getting energy from this conversation. For me, it uses energy like driving somewhere long distance. So I get my energy from being on my own. You know, that's different for everybody. Some autistics I know love massively heavy metal music and lots of noise. Everybody's got a different lightning rod for the amount of energy that's going on in their brain. And and the important thing is you don't make sweeping generalizations. And that's really hard because you mentioned a fantastic word in your question, which was the word representation. And there is a challenge with representation, particularly for um, neurodivergent people. And the challenge is that quite often charities and things that are meant to support us, medical communities, are run by neurotypical people. And so they use neurotypical standards to judge what a neurodivergent lifestyle should be like, including language. What we need to do is recognize that each set of people there have their own strengths. And actually, it's been proven that if you put a load of autistics in the room, they actually communicate just fine. What we have is a challenge where we're thinking different. You know, that old... uh, women are from Venus and men are from Mars thing. It's that kind of thing, but for neurotypes. And we just need to work it out and and have respect for each other. And diverse teams, including neurodiversity, are more successful, but they do have a longer period of storming and norming, you know, in that team formation phase. And people don't kind of allow for that all the time. Okay, it's time for a quick break. Have you noticed that you think about money differently than allistic people? No, this is autistic people. So I'm autistic and this is one key trait. We will have special interests generally, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed is whatever my special interest is, is shoes. 
And whereas I might dither for quite a long time about buying a book for 20 quid, I'll be like, ooh, 200 pound shoes. They look lovely. I need to have those. Bing, 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 bing. It doesn't matter what it is, you know. So, you know, somebody might be really interested in zero, zero gauge trains or dragons or fantasy and science fiction role play, whatever it is. And what I've found is that typically for autistic people, they'll have special interests. And and sometimes that, that can lead to challenges financially. I also know a lot of people that are money blind. It doesn't have that concept for them because it's not important to them. That isn't an important concept for them. And obviously that's a big challenge because it leaves you vulnerable to being taken advantage of and it leaves it challenging in society. If you look at what's happened in COVID, for example, in COVID a lot of the banks are going all payment card only. And that actually is a challenge for many vulnerable people, like people that only deal with money and they, you know, they have their money in the little envelopes so that they can manage their different pockets of money. That also applies to a lot of elderly people. So we are building in discrimination into our society as we move it forward without necessarily realising it. Because if you haven't got that challenge, it doesn't occur to you the impact of that on subgroups of people, including economically disadvantaged people that may have suffered what we call a county court judgment, you know, where you've had to go bankrupt right? for sometimes no, no fault of your own, but they often run in a cash economy. So, you know, we, we're talking about some pretty serious implications of just moving forward with electronic funds. I've also noticed, though, that there are some banks that have started to spring up that have been created by minority or marginalised groups. So, for example, in the UK, there's a bank called Starling, that was founded by a, a very successful woman. And what's really interesting with the Starling Bank is it runs on an app, so it's very friendly. You don't have to have separate things to log in. And in that, you can have little pots. You can have as many as you like, and you can take your, your salary and you can immediately put it into little pots. So it's where I tithe, for example. I have my go-giving pot, and as soon as I get my salary, I put 10% of it, and then whatever I decide to spend that money on for other people, it comes out of my tithing pot. And I've got holiday pot and a nice things pot and so it, it you know sometimes technology is really useful but I've noticed that a lot of that technology is actually originating from people that are marginalized and therefore thinking about the impact of this kind of stuff where can people find out more about you and follow you the best place is probably Twitter with CyberGoGiver, but I also have a website which I need to update called um, NicolaWhiting.com, which is being updated even as we speak. And I've I've literally just purchased a website called Nawu N A W U Nothing About Us Without Us, where I yes. want to make a platform for primarily neurodivergent people to have a a place to put some quite frankly fantastic writing from an autistic point of view or from an ADHD point of view or whatever kind of point of view, because I, I want to raise the voices of truly neurodivergent people because they often get spoken over by the very groups that are set up to help them, unfortunately. And now we're going to talk to Mal Blum, who takes us on a meandering and funny journey into money and ADHD. I love them. It's nice to meet you, Gabby Dunn. <laughs> My name is Mal Blum. For anybody who doesn't know, I am a musician. I'm a songwriter. I'm a regular writer. As of a couple months ago, I guess I'm also a model and an actor. Um, I am transgender. I am a New Yorker. 
I am. Are you serious? Like originally. No, I, Phoebe, I know, but I'm just saying, like, you're my, you're my partner. I'm getting and you're, there. What are you, I'm what also. Are you here to t- I'm getting there. I'm also Gabby Dunn's partner in yeah. romance and uh, life, dog parenting, and as it would happen, I guess finances uh, a little bit. <laughs> So this episode is about neurodivergence and money. What do you have? Maybe they can guess from my intro. I have ADHD. I was diagnosed very, very young when I was nine. And that's been a lifelong struggle. And I also, in later life, figured out that I have depression and anxiety. So, you know, if you weren't diagnosed early, then you weren't struggling with it, right? So that, that I'm, I was fine before that. No, no, we did. Um, we did talk about that with Nicola, our, our former guest, about not realizing that you had a diagnosis and then being like, oh, I was already living my whole life that way anyway. So I didn't realize that I probably have OCD until I started dating you. I thought I had like bugs living on my body at one point before I went on anxiety meds. And, and you were like, I, that's just how life is. People walk around thinking they have bugs under their skin. Well, I think that's part of neurodivergence, right? Because like I was diagnosed with ADHD so young that I was like, oh, okay, I know what my deal is. That was the most prominent, you know, quote unquote, disruptive Mm -hmm. part of my mental health. So that was the one that was focused on. So I think I was like, well, everything else is is not a problem, but it was. So So we were going to talk about ADHD and money. And one thing that you mentioned was an inability to cancel your gym membership. So can we go through... Mm. What is the problem and what is the thought process and wh- and why can't this yeah. happen? Oh, yeah. It's well, it's not just gym memberships. It's anything, anything that makes it a little bit difficult to talk to or get to the administrative aspects of something. It's like almost impossible. Most people, I think, from what I have gathered from being around other people, are like, oh, yeah, I don't want to have to like call and like talk to Toyota or like I don't want to have to write an email or whatever, whatever. They're like a little annoyed. But somebody with ADHD, not everybody because everybody's symptoms are differently. Me with ADHD, it's like almost impossible. I often have have trouble with, I think, the transitional elements of a task. So it's like it's it's not that it's like once I'm on the phone or once I'm like doing the thing, it's okay. But getting to the point where I have the number in front of me. I'm calling them. I'm like doing it is like feels sometimes like an insurmountable task in a way that I can't really explain from the outside. So with things that make it intentionally hard, that's even worse. And one of those things is my gym membership with Planet Fitness, (laughs) which I've been trying to cancel since the beginning of the pandemic. And I can't. They got me to write a letter, which I cannot explain to you how difficult it is as somebody with ADHD to sit down, write a letter, send it in the mail, and then they still didn't cancel it. And then one time I took my meds and I was like, today is the day I'm going to like call and like I'm doing it. And I, I call, I talk to them. They still don't cancel it. I think they just know that certain people just like won't be able to like get over that hurdle or like go in there. I can't explain it, but yeah, I think. No, you're 
explaining it. I mean, I think this will be relatable to a lot of people. What needs to happen for you to complete something? Like a lot of times it needs to be like time that can't be interrupted by another task. Mm -hmm. It's like needing to gear up to do the thing. Let's say there's something, not a gym membership, because that seems to be just impossible. (laughs) But like if there's a task that's achievable, what needs to happen for you to do it? And what happens when it's not able to be done? It's funny because... You know, I was diagnosed super young and, and this has always been something that I've known about myself and have worked with and have been on medication. And But still sometimes I think because of the way the larger culture treats this particular mental illness, I'm like, everyone feels like this and I just, I just can't or whatever. But then living with you, I see <laughs> I see like it's mirrored to me like, oh, no, like this is just some people can just sit down and do this. So I guess for me, well, I was put on medication very young, but I think because of that, I also didn't really learn, like medication is definitely really important for me, right? But I also, in conjunction with that, needed to learn some behavioral stuff that I'm sort of just learning as an adult. So if I want to complete a task like that, I have to, structure and routines are like pretty important for me. So I have to wake up pretty early because I've learned that if I lose time, because I often lose time, if I lose time and then it's like late in the day, I feel really, really bad and bad about myself. So I have started waking up early to to compensate for that. So like if I wake up at 730 and I lose an hour or two, then I don't feel as like bad about myself. And by lose, it's like you you get fixated on something or you, mm-hmm. you get like stuck in one thing and then you're like, oh shit, it's 11 a.m. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I'll either hyperfixate on something or I'll just, you know, they've done some studies that that have uh, studied something called time blindness, which is, I guess, the theory that people with ADHD, some of them feel time moving differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not really aware of how much time is passing sometimes, which is something I've really had to work on a lot um, because, mm-hmm. you know, I was late to everything my whole life. Might be hard to do if you're an office worker or something. Yeah, it's funny because the career I chose, which was like, you know, musician, but for a long time, I didn't have managers or anything helping me. So it was just like I did on my own. It was like I was a musician, but I was also doing all my own booking, all my own emails, everything like that. So for a long time, I was like, I picked the worst job like I just like I, it's tor- horrible <laughs> for me. There's no structure. You, you have to reach out to all the people. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And but I don't think I would do well in an office setting. In some ways, maybe I would because there is like routine and structure. But in other ways, I, I don't know that I could just like sit in an office all day and and be good at it. I don't know. Anyway, to answer your question, we're jumping around, obviously. <laughs> to answer your question, if I want to get a task done, I have to wake up early. I have to write it down the night before. I make so many lists because mm-hmm. I forget things all the time, right? So like the way to compensate is I I have to make so many lists. So I'll put it on my schedule for the next day or whatever. I have to wake up early. I have to I have to take my meds, which is like difficult because I, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, people with ADHD, they don't take their meds regularly. They don't have a good relationship with medication. So it's, you know, something to accept that if I want to get stuff like that done, I, I have to I have to take my meds. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have to like block off periods of time where where I'm sort of doing stuff where um, I know we've talked about before. It's really difficult for me if I do something in the middle of the day 
break up my day to to get back into doing whatever else I was. I think because I do have issues with those transitional periods. So I kind of have to do things in a block. And so like it's I've seen like you will come home and you'll be like, okay, it's after dinner. I'll do some more work. And it's like I I can't. I can't yeah. really function like that, you know? And we're talking about tasks from like sending one email. Like my sister, so Cheyenne also has ADHD. And like mm-hmm. my mom will be like, I need you to call the insurance company. And mm-hmm. Cheyenne literally it, three days will go by and she's like, you don't understand the energy I need to build up to call the insurance company. Right. Whereas like a, a neurotypical person is like, you just call. Right. And so sometimes for me, the frustration is like, you ju- just do it. And you're like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, that reminds me of being a kid um, because like that's that's exactly what it was like with with homework, basically, where it was like it would take me five minutes to do these worksheets. I probably could do it on the bus on the way home, but instead I'm going to like have an inner meltdown for two hours because you just you can't open your backpack because you can't get to the transitional part of like opening the backpack. And like I can't explain why that part is the hard part. But I think it's typical. Right. So do you think that you think about money in a different way? That's interesting because I don't know how other people think about money outside of my brain, you know, but (laughs) yeah, um, I know just what you've observed. Sure. I know that it was sort of explained to me, I think, from an early age, you have impulsivity problems and you have to work on that. You have to work. That was like the, the main thing that I was like helped to work on as a as a kid anything related to impulsivity i think i've actually done a lot of behavioral work around that and i think one of those things is money right so i remember even being a kid and i went to public school i don't know if anybody else who went to public school ever did this thing where they called it the holiday boutique oh you know yeah what I'm talking about? oh yeah yeah so they set up these little tables with these trinkets or whatever and the kids come in with, you know, $5, $10 and they get like little like tchotchkes for their family. And they're like, I'm buying presents for my family at the holiday boutique, you know? So I remember my parents, they still tell this story of like every time we would go every year, they would give me and my little sister, they'd give us each like a $10 bill. Right. And, um, Steffi would buy all her presents and like come home and be like, I bought them all. Here you go. And I would buy all the presents for people. And I would buy like for the least amount of money I could, I guess. And so I would like come home with presents for everyone, but I would have like $8 left and I would like give it back to them and be like, I only spent $2 or whatever. I think I had a sense early on that my impulsivity could be tied to like money spending stuff. And I think I I overcorrected and I'm like (laughs) overly careful because I don't trust myself, if that makes sense. Which is sad that like, you know, from a, a little kid was like, okay, capitalism, money's going to be a problem for me. Like, it's like, <laughs> like you bought like one eraser. You're like, everyone share this. <laughs> uh, attachment to things. So like hoarding. Yeah. What's that about? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I have a tendency towards that, which if gone unchecked, I think would be pretty bad. Why can't you get rid of anything? I don't know. I have emotional attachments. To- I get rid of some things. It's just difficult. Yeah. You have emotional attachments to inanimate objects. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always, I mean, it's hard to know what's right. Like what's anxiety, what's OCD, what's ADHD. I don't know. But, you know, that's also been present since I was a really little kid. Like, you know, my parents got a new kitchen table 
when I was like seven and I had like a full meltdown in the store and I was like, I'll never eat on this kitchen table. You can't get rid of the other <laughs> kitchen table. And they were like, this is so weird. What's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know. I don't have language for it. So I'm throwing a tantrum about the table. Yeah. I have to go through a process, right? So like I actually listened to the audio book of, um, of that Marie Kondo book. Yeah. And I like followed when I had to, you know, when my parents moved out of our childhood home seven years ago or whatever, I, I had to sort of follow the steps in that process. I need structure. I can't just like yeah. look at something and make a decision. I also am bad at making decisions, which is not related to ADHD, I don't think. But I think some of it is because there's a meltdown associated with choosing. Right. When we were choosing, right, where, where to, to rent. Yeah, that. I don't trust my own decision making. And I also, it feels hard to focus enough to like make a decision sometimes or even know what I want. So that can be a little destabilizing. If someone is sharing finances with an ADHD partner and like you and I just purchased something large together, not going to say what, but how could you be a good partner to that person? I don't think that dealing with finances with an ADHD partner necessarily has to be any different than dealing with finances with a neurotypical partner. Because I think for all people who are either sharing finances or sharing purchases or whatever, the conversation should be, you know, what do I need? What do you need? What do I need to feel supportive? What do you need to feel supported? What do we need to feel safe and secure? What can we realistically each contribute? What are our own individual relationships to money from either our adult life, even earlier back, what were like our first associations with money? Like everybody has a different relationship to money. And I think that talking about all of those things is super important. Also talking about different, you know, maybe my therapist would call it catastrophizing, but talking about different things that could happen and like how you will handle them before before they happen, you know? I was going to say, I can't believe it's so hard for you to write a letter, but you wrote a little contract for us in terms of like <laughs> what happens with our money if, if we break up. You wrote a little contract. So uh, th I appreciate that considering how hard I know it is now for you to write a letter. So thank you. No, writing a letter is not hard. Sending it is difficult. <laughs> You're right, you're right. I'm serious. Mal, where can people find you? I'm um, just Mal Blum on all social media handles. And my website is malblum.com. I guess once things open up, maybe I'll see you at a merch table or something. Yeah. <laughs> this episode is just the tip of a very big iceberg. But I hope this can be a conversation starter for ableism in the workplace. And to go even deeper for questions about why work functions the way it does in the first place. Seems to me like another we've always done it this way, so we have to keep doing it this way situation that is patently false. My little sister also has ADHD. I remember when we were in school, she faced a lot of cruelty from teachers who berated her for not being able to finish work in the same time frame or with the same methods the other kids seemed to. She graduated high school believing she was just not smart. Years later, we can both now see that was not the case, but she still struggles with her inability to do these simple tasks. But simple for who exactly? And if you're someone listening who is neurodivergent, you're not a burden and you're not alone. 
asking for accommodations is not you being inconvenient. These are all things I've told myself and my sister has said she's told herself and I'm sure many of you have told yourselves too. There's beauty in your brain. You are necessary. The world is a better place because of how you think. Now if we could just quit it with that fluorescent lighting. <laughs> Done.